the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello and welcome to the first in a new series of Slaughter and May podcasts. This series focuses on redundancy and over the five episodes we'll discuss the most business critical areas for employers to think about in the current climate. I'm Claire Fletcher, a professional support lawyer in the employment team, and today I'm joined by one of our partners, Phil Leonard. In today's episode, Phil and I will share our insights on how Brexit and COVID-19 is shaping the landscape for redundancies. There are five key points we're going to discuss today. Firstly, some of the legal changes we've seen already and those that are potentially coming down the line. Secondly, when to start redundancy consultation. Thirdly, the types of downturn some businesses are seeing and the solutions those may require. Fourthly, are jobs disappearing or in fact just changing? And then fifthly, how new problems will need new solutions. So to start on our first theme, the legal changes we've already seen really relate to COVID-19. The introduction of the job retention scheme, the job support scheme and the job retention bonus. We've, of course, also had new legal restrictions on attending work and which workplaces can legally open and with what COVID secure measures in place. And we've said lots about that in previous podcasts and briefings that you can find on our website. All of these COVID measures have had a clear impact on the level of redundancies we've seen over the last six months or so, and indeed that we're likely to see going forward. The early indications are that the job support scheme and the job retention bonus may be less effective at staving off redundancies than the job retention scheme was. Although the recent extension to the job support scheme will no doubt be welcomed by businesses who are forced to close in the coming months. Thanks, Claire. In terms of Brexit, on the other hand, the employment law changes, if any, are all yet to come. The status quo has been maintained during the current implementation period, and we're looking ahead to what happens from the 1st of January 2021 onwards. We know already that there's likely to be an immediate impact on UK companies who participate in European Works Councils. We know that European Works Councils, or EWCs, are often often used to provide consultation mechanisms on large-scale redundancies, especially cross-border ones. But after the 1st of January 21, it's possible that they may no longer be able to carry out that role in respect of UK employees. So for companies with an EWC, those companies should now be thinking about what changes they might need to make in January to either amend their current consultation arrangements or put in place alternatives. Looking further ahead to the medium or long term, there may be scope for changes to several UK employment laws, which have until now been underpinned by EU law. How much change is possible and how much change happens depends on what deal, if any, the UK can strike with the EU about the future trading relationship. We know, though, that the level playing field for workers' rights has been one of the major talking points in the deal negotiations so far. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the sticking points, we might even say. And assuming that there isn't any kind of deal either with the EU or any other country which prevents them doing so, it might be that the UK government looks to make changes to some of the laws that govern redundancy. So broadly speaking, the UK employment laws that govern individual redundancy process and the the fairness of redundancy dismissals are purely domestic laws and won't be directly affected by Brexit. On the other hand, the requirement for collective redundancy consultation is derived from EU law, and it's here that changes could be made as a result of Brexit. 
How those laws work in an insolvency context, for example, has been recognised as problematic for many years. And we'll be talking a bit more about the insolvency angle on redundancies in a later podcast. Looking now, though, at the collective redundancy consultation process in a bit more detail, that brings us on to our second theme, which is when to start that collective redundancy process. Now, this is a difficult question at the best of times, but even more so in the context of Brexit and COVID-19. The need for this collective redundancy consultation arises where an employer is proposing to dismiss as redundant 20 or more employees at one establishment within a period of 90 days or less. Now, what's relatively clear is that the consultation has to take place before the final decision is made and that the redundancy dismissals can't be affected until that consultation process is concluded. And that's really important for employers to remember from a planning perspective. The more difficult issue, though, is deciding when the need to consult is triggered. Legally, there needs to be more than a mere possibility that redundancies might be needed. The employer has to have a clear albeit provisional, intention to make redundancies. You're right, Claire, that this is a difficult area for companies. On the one hand, no company will want to start consulting on redundancy planning before it's ready. On the other hand, leave the consultation too late and companies can be open to challenge on the quality of their consultation or can be accused of having made decisions before having consulted workforces properly. In reality, many businesses will have spent many of the last few months thinking about various scenarios for their businesses going forward, which may involve changes to their workforce. Where companies have been carrying out that modelling process, we would always advise that internal documents around the modelling contain caveats to protect the company. For example, that no decisions have been made, that any decisions are subject to applicable informing and consulting processes, or even assuming that this is the case, that any modelling scenarios in internal documents are provisional only and are part of an ongoing but not yet completed review. What's important is that at the time that the company pulls the trigger, it can demonstrate that the consultation is genuine and that the views expressed during the consultation will be taken into account by the company in reaching its final decision. Companies will also, at the moment, be very much aware that the COVID and the Brexit landscape can change over the next few months quite significantly. And we expect that companies are going to be cautious where they have choice about the timing of their headcount exercises before launching consultations, just in case the business environment for them changes significantly after the consultation is launched. So Claire, I think on the consultation planning side, it's all about doing effective modelling within businesses, but not baking in decisions at this stage before consultation has happened. Absolutely. I think what we've, just to talk a bit more about COVID, what we've seen there is that, similar with Brexit really, there's been a bit of wait and see, and the CJRS has allowed that to a certain degree with COVID. Um, The job support scheme, on the other hand, might continue to allow employers to take that approach, but potentially to a lesser degree, as I mentioned earlier. There's an interesting distinction between uh, what employers can do with redundancies between the the CJRS and now the JSS. So where employees were furloughed under the CJRS, the employer could undertake redundancy consultation with employees and even issue notices of redundancy to furloughed employees while still receiving grants under the scheme. 
contrast the position with the JSS, where the limited guidance we have at the moment says that an employee can't be made redundant or even put on notice of redundancy whilst the employer is claiming a grant for that employee through the JSS. So far, we don't have any clarity about whether the employer can undertake redundancy consultation with employees whilst utilising the JSS. So there looks to be a clearer distinction as the employer between utilising the JSS and implementing redundancies than there might have been with the CJRS. There's less overlap, I think, going forward. Thanks, Claire. And I think one final point on this topic before moving on, and that's that companies have to remember that consultation can be triggered in unexpected scenarios. We know, and we've just talked about, collective redundancy consultations being carried out where companies genuinely propose to reduce their headcount in response to uh, business performance. But if, for example, a company wants to change terms and conditions, a pay cut or introducing short working, short time working, then if the employer wants to implement that change by terminating existing contracts and offering re-engagement on new terms, or says to employees that they will face redundancy if they don't accept the new terms, then employers need to be careful because they could again be in collective consultation territory. So it's really important not only for companies to plan their consultation process with headcount reductions, but be alive to the potential for consultation in other scenarios where they're looking to change the arrangements for their workforce. Moving on then to our third theme for today. That's the question for each business of what kind of effects are you experiencing as a result of Brexit, as a result of COVID, for how long and what's the right response? It became evident very quickly as the pandemic progressed that some businesses were faring much better than others. And we know that some businesses have been and will be impacted by Brexit to different degrees to, their, to others. There's simply no one size fits all approach here to redundancies and workforce planning as companies respond to the pandemic and to Brexit. But we do know that there are some common factors that companies can be looking at when planning their headcount requirements going forward. A non-exhaustive list, let's give some examples. Clearly, companies will have to think about their financial situation. Sometimes it may simply be a case of how many employees they can afford to pay and for how long. In other words, companies may have no choice about redundancy planning. Other companies, though, may be in the position of having some flexibility. They will need to look at the, look at the outlook for their own businesses and for their own industries across the different areas of the country and indeed the world in which they operate. Companies will need to look at the terms of any trade deal that the UK might reach with the EU and with other countries. Companies will have to look at any local or national COVID related restrictions that apply in the areas where they operate. And they'll also have to think about whether and to the extent and the extent to which they've taken advantage of any COVID related financial support and any restrictions that come with that financial support in terms of how they deal with their headcount going forward. For many companies, it may be that Brexit-related impacts are more sustained than COVID-related impacts. For example, the new rules on immigration that might come from Brexit could result in a longer-term shortage of employees, which companies may have to balance out against any short-term excess of employees that's resulting from a business downturn caused by the pandemic. Companies are going to have to do a difficult balancing act between current need in a depressed business environment as a result of the pandemic, and on the other hand, future anticipated need, taking into account how they think their business is going to recover from the pandemic, 
how it's likely to be impacted by Brexit and the availability of workers that their business needs. I think that leads quite nicely in, Phil, to, to the fourth theme, which is, are jobs actually disappearing for your business or are they just changing? So there's been lots of focus on the COVID pandemic actually accelerating changes in the job market. And with that comes a renewed focus on what jobs are viable. So some employers have been able to do an analysis of, of what jobs within that business are viable on quite a nuanced basis and looking beyond the immediate requirements of COVID and Brexit. Others, however, simply haven't had that luxury, as you've mentioned, Phil, given the immediate and severe impact of COVID on their business. And even where jobs might appear viable in the long term and the business hopes to rehire employees in the future, it might be that, as of now, redundancies are needed. That's likely to be primarily a financial decision, uh, balancing the cost of continuing to employ those individuals, even with things like the job support scheme and the job retention bonus, against the redundancy costs and what the company can actually afford to pay at the moment. It's not just the types of jobs that are changing, I think we're seeing, though. It's also the way in which they're carried out. So flexible or agile working has soared during the pandemic and certainly looks like it's here to stay. You're, you're right, Claire. We see headlines every day about companies looking ahead to how they're going to staff their businesses going forward, whether their workforce will be in the office, at home or a combination of the two. And we might see more changes in law to reflect that. A right to work from home has been mooted since the early days of the lockdown here. And in Germany, the government has recently confirmed that there will be a right for at least 24 days a year, if the needs of the business and workflow allow, to uh, work from home. So it's a limited right, but we can see the direction of travel. We also know that Brexit will likely have an impact on the nature of jobs going forward. We expect that Brexit will mean that immigration for certain types of role, in particular at the low skilled end of the workforce, will become more costly and more complex for employers. And that may change the makeup of workforces over the time. We might also speculate that the increase in remote working accelerated by COVID means that some jobs, in particular those that don't require an in-person presence, will become more globalised and, and that increased immigration costs that could result from a post-Brexit immigration regime could be offset by some companies deciding that their workers don't need to be in the country where they operate and can work in effect from wherever they like on the globe. We saw in the last financial crisis some employers introducing a right to vary as or pay in some circumstances and we know anecdotally that those employers may have come into the pandemic in a more flexible and stronger position than companies that had less flexibility in their employment terms. Now what's possible in terms of flexibility of employment terms is going to depend on the employment law landscape after Brexit and what future governments decide to do in respect of employees' rights. But we could well see companies thinking over the coming years of how they position themselves for future business shocks and how to give themselves the flexibility in their workforce to respond to unforeseen developments in the business environment. Which brings us on nicely to our final theme. Um, on the idea that new problems need new solutions. We are clearly in uncharted territory here. That would have been the case with either facing Brexit or COVID on their own, but certainly the combination is looking like it is providing the perfect storm. And the approaches that companies might have used in the past to their workforce planning or their redundancy processes may simply be no longer fit for purpose. And those new solutions that we're starting to, to see emerging 
might need to work within a legal framework that's struggling to catch up. I hope what we've done today is bring through those some consistent themes. The importance of careful planning, early intervention, and coming up with well thought out tailored solutions for your particular business. Ultimately, the sort of uncertainty we're experiencing will always create challenges, but it can also create opportunities. And I think we will continue to see that as both Brexit and COVID play out. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you all for listening. Do look out for future episodes in this series, which we'll be publishing in the coming weeks. You can find all of our podcasts via the Slaughter and May website. Thank you and goodbye for now. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.